Welcome, beautiful people to Camp Cozy. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk all about Starfield. But first, I quickly want to talk about this PlayStation Plus price increase. It was the other big news story of last week. So Sony announced that starting September 6th, prices for all three tiers of PlayStation Plus will increase by at least 33% per tier. Essential goes from 60 to 80 a year. Extra goes from 100 to 135. Premium goes from 120 to $160 per year. Monthly prices remain the same, $10 for essential, $15 for extra, and $18 for premium. But most importantly, these price increases came with nothing else increasing because it's not like they're adding any new features. They didn't announce anything outside of, hey, the price is going up. Um, the only thing that I have planned is for the premium tier, remember, which is now going to cost $160 a year. They are adding 4K cloud streaming at some point, but we don't know when that's happening. Outside of that, there are no extra benefits that they have uh, announced. This was unanimously, everyone disliked that. <laughs> like, even like the Sony Stan accounts found it indefensible. Um, this is definitely not as bad as when Xbox tried to double the price of Colt, if you guys remember that. Um, but it's it, it's not that bad in terms of the increase, but it is worse because unlike Xbox, they're not reversing it, uh, even though a lot of people were upset. Apparently, their stock price actually went up. <laughs> it did not go down. Um, yeah, PlayStation fans were not happy. A lot of Stan accounts were unhappy um, with this. Uh, for me, I could care less. I do not subscribe to PlayStation Plus. I actually also don't subscribe to Xbox Live Gold. If I'm going to play a multiplayer game, I'm honestly getting it on PC. Why? Because it's free to play multiplayer. <laughs> you know, Xbox, you, first of all, you guys can blame Xbox for this. Xbox was the one that came up with the idea for charging people a monthly fee to, to play online. So we can thank Xbox for, for beginning all of this, right, with Xbox Live. But um, this is why I play, you know, um, on uh, on PC, like, the only really multiplayer game that I play is really Overwatch, to be honest with you. That's the only one I play regularly. But uh, I had it for Xbox at some point when the PC version went down to like 10 bucks. I bought it on PC and I just got rid of the, uh, the Xbox. And I currently don't have Game Pass. So I just don't have a reason to pay for any of this stuff. Because at its core, for PlayStation Plus Essential, for example, you need it to play multiplayer, which is why, like I said... Play games on PC because it's always going to be free. Um, a lot of people were also talking about comparing this to Game Pass Core, which is Xbox's now cheapest tier that's going to replace Xbox uh, Gold. That's going to happen September 14th, so very soon. That is still $60 a year. Um, Xbox recently made that announcement, so that I don't think they're going to raise that anytime soon. That includes a changing list of over 25 games. So some people were trying to compare the value of like, wow, that's 60. Why is uh, PlayStation 80? Uh, now, the only things that PlayStation Essential has that Xbox Game Pass Core does not is cloud saves. So you have to pay PlayStation at least the Essential tier in order to get cloud saves. On Xbox, that's actually free. You don't need any, you, know, you, need, to, you don't need to pay for any tier in order to access your cloud saves. 
Uh, so that's a, a, a point for Xbox. The only other things that PlayStation Plus gives you is access to game tips, like those hint videos, which I guarantee you not that many people use. Uh, the whole thing about like uh, share play, where you can have a friend take over your controller, yeah, whatever. I don't think it's like that huge, huge of a deal. So the big thing is really the multiplayer. And I think that one of the big negatives for PlayStation when it comes to this is that by making this announcement, they have now increased the price of every PlayStation game that's sold. And what's weird is that there are so many PlayStation games that PlayStation gamers are used to play on PlayStation that rely on online, right? Marketing is so heavy on Mortal Kombat. Why do you buy Mortal Kombat? It's definitely not to play the story mode, right? You're playing with people online. You're going to have to pay. Now, your, your Mortal Kombat prices went up by $20. NBA 2K comes out this week. Your price of 2K just went up $20. Call of Duty. Your Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 just went up $20. And the reason why is we, when people go out to buy these games for $70, they're not buying them for single player. They're buying them for online play. Street Fighter 6 uh, is a PlayStation, pretty much a PlayStation first type of game. Um, your price is not going to go up when it comes to that. And um, yeah, so now your price has gone up $20. And the thing that's really interesting is that I'm sure that there are a lot of Call of Duty players that are now have started kind of considering about, man, do I start playing on Xbox now? Knowing that at some point those games are going to go into Game Pass. And now PlayStation has just told every Call of Duty owner, every co your copy of Call of Duty now has gone up by $20. Because people need to remember that over a million players on uh, PlayStation only play Call of Duty. And that's the only game they play all year. NBA 2K is adding crossplay this this year. So it's like your copy of 2K just went up to $20. Like, man, maybe it's time to switch over to Xbox. You know, this is kind of, I do look at it as like it's a little bit of a big deal. And those three monthly games are not really good. <laughs> you know, I did say that the quality was going to go down. It looks like I was right. Saints Row is there this month. Uh, ironically, they announced it. And then like two days later, Volition was like, hey guys, we're closing down. <laughs> it's like <laughs> crazy, crazy timing. So a lot of people for the last few months have been really upset at those three games. So everyone's kind of saying the same thing. Why am I paying more? Why am I giving you an extra $20 a year? When Game Pass increased their prices, Xbox gamers didn't complain. You can hear a peep. The reason why they didn't complain about that price increase, $1 more per month, or an extra, I think it was like 2 or $3 for Ultimate, is because the thing is still overvalued. They still feel like they're getting the bang for their buck. They know that Activision Blizzard is about to be added onto it. Starfield is there day one. They got some great third-party deals with Lies of P and all these other games that are getting um, put on there um, uh, day one. Um, you know, and now Xbox is now turning on this gear, or it's like, well, Fable's going to be there. Um, you know, uh, Towerborn is going to be there. Hellblade 2 is going to be on there. Perfect Dark. Once they start, the machine really starts moving. And the fact that third-party deals, Sea of Stars and all these other games are still there day one. Cocoon, which I'm looking forward to coming to Game Pass. Um, that's why no one complained. But when you increase the price of PlayStation Plus another $20 <laughs> and you don't tell people, hey, here's how we're going to make that up. It's just basically like, yeah, we just want $20 more from you. Uh, you're going to get a lot of people uh, complaining. So yeah, this honestly, it's a really, really bad move from PlayStation. Um, I, I'm not paying it, so it doesn't affect me personally, 
But this is something where if you're paying for it, you kind of have to start asking yourself that question. Like right now we're in this moment where everything's a subscription and you have to start really making these decisions. And um, yeah, I wonder how many people are now just looking at like PC and like, man, you know, maybe it's time to build a PC <laughs> as more and more games are coming to PC. Uh, you know, you're not worried about PlayStation single player, but you're worried about multiplayer. When, like I said, the price of every game just went up $20. Now let's talk about Starfield. Um, pretty successful launch for uh, Xbox. Over 230,000 concurrent Steam players in the first two hours. The 24-hour peak, I believe, exceeded 248,000. I haven't actually checked in a while. That's probably already been beaten. And, um, you know, the game's actually not officially out yet. Oh, no, 248,632 is the current peak record. And that's kind of before the game came out, which is really interesting. The only way to play it right now or play it early was to either buy the $100 version or if you have Game Pass, paying for the $35 upgrade, which I feel is I, I kind of don't get why anyone would do that <laughs> because... You're essentially paying $35 for a game that you will not be able to access if you don't have Game Pass anymore, which is why I just went ahead and bought the $100 version because it gives me the Xbox version and I get the PC version and I can transfer, you know, cloud saves, keep them synced up, which is really, uh, really good because I started on Xbox and then I very recently started on PC. I had to make some space on my my SSD because you need a solid state drive. I made this space and I started playing on PC yesterday. I mean, a thousand times better, you know, any Bethesda game. If you don't play on PC, I feel like you, you're really not playing a Bethesda game. Um, Metacritic right now is 87 for PC and 88 for Xbox series. So I wanted to talk about things that I like, the things that I don't like. And I wanted to talk about um, the criticism behind the criticism of Starfield. A lot of people talking about these these different reviews um, for the uh, for the game. So here, quickly, a couple things that I I like that I noticed. Um, number one is I really liked how dynamic it is in the way that you get missions. Like sometimes you'll just be running around, you overhear someone talking about somebody that adds it to your mission list. So like, um, all right overheard a police officer talking about a woman in the city that claimed that her husband was murdered. And the police officer was kind of speaking aloud saying like, Oh, you know, that sounds really ridiculous. And, uh, and of course, uh, that added as a mission. I haven't pursued it, but I added it as a, uh, a mission. I thought that was really cool. Like I remember at one point I was in a club and just walking around, I stumbled upon the DJ and I just went up to have a conversation. And within that conversation, there was a mission buried within it which was uh, someone had stole her music or something like that. I like that the game doesn't indicate like, hey, go talk to this DJ to potentially get a mission. It just comes across organically. I really like that. I also like that there's some missions that, you know, then you can kind of choose to completely ignore it. Like one was from a shopkeeper that was complaining about, a, a you know, his, his competitor or something like that. I was like, I really don't care. So there was an option where you could pursue, pursue it further and say like, oh, you know, I'll help you out with your problem. I was like, no, 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 just just show me what you're you're selling. Uh, I thought that was really cool. Um, other things like picking up notes, all of a sudden you'll pick up a note and then you'll come across um, a, uh, 
what do you call it? A um, a mission, which I thought was really cool. Sometimes you warp to a planet and you get a distress call. Um, like I remember I had gone to a planet and someone had asked, hey, could you could you talk to the leader of this planet? You know, this this sort of people on this planet. And I found out that there was a ship in orbit that they wanted me to figure out uh, what it was. And um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but um, I liked I liked it because it showed that there are still a lot of missions in this game where you are given various ways to complete a mission. Sometimes it's very laid out for you, which I don't like. Um, I remember there was one mission where I did where I was having some conversation with people and all of a sudden you, you, you see your optional objectives and like four of them showed up. I don't really like to be so blatantly told like, hey, here are these different methods for you know completing your task. I would rather it be hinted at and then I go on my own exploring and figure out like, oh wait, I can do this in order to get that. I didn't. I I don't like that the game sort of holds your hand in a sense and explicitly sort of tells you like, hey, here are the different options. These are the things that you can do. I I kind of, uh, I I wish that you could just kind of figure it out as you go along. Um, I like the atmosphere of the game. I think that there's been some people that, like I know that David Jaffe, the you know the first director of God of War, has been playing the game. He talked about how ugly the game is. I think that there are moments where I will admit like, man, this game is kind of ugly. New Atlantis is one of them. It's just an awful looking city <laughs> in terms of like layout, architecture, uh, the textures of certain things like the trees. Everything just feels very, very flat. Uh, but then there are these moments where you are on the planet and, you know, you can look up and see that sky and see the stars and, you know, be illuminated by the moon um it that to me is 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 really jaw-dropping it really is amazing i think the game does a good job of making you really feel like you're in space uh especially because different planets have different biomes and different atmospheres have different levels of gravity um so you know the moon is very low gravity so you can get a lot of air with every jump uh, so I, I really like that. I also like that sometimes when you're on planets, you'll hear ships taking off and ships landing. Sometimes when you are on a planet, you'll you'll hear a ship entering the atmosphere. And you'll look up and you'll actually see that ship come down, which is uh, just an amazing, amazing sight. Like it, it, things like that feel a little bit like they sound kind of minor, but they feel really good in the game in order to kind of place you in that world and, and place you within uh, that scale. Uh, I think space combat is pretty cool. I like that. I like that you can balance different systems. You can hire people to be on your crew to help you with defensive and shield balancing and, and help with the energy weapons and stuff like that when you're when you're dogfighting, which I thought was really cool. There's a lot of customization involved with your ship. Um, so I think overall... It really a lot, a lot of people say Skyrim in space. I feel like it's more like Fallout in space, uh, ex- except the gunplay is way better. Even if the third-person view still isn't like supremely functional in terms of trying to shoot, the combat is really fun, especially on like low gravity planets where you're able to like, you know, use your jetpack to to you know float around or like your enemies taking cover and you can just 
you know, use your, your, your booster pack to, to go right up above them and kind of shoot down on them. Uh, so it opens up a lot of cool stuff with, uh, with combat. So definitely the gun plays a lot better. The guns feel, um, a lot better. They feel a lot more impactful. I'm picking up a lot of interesting weapons, you know, uh, of course you're going to get a lot of the run of the mill, but, um, I feel like I've seen a good string of like rare and legendary weapons and helmets and stuff to, to keep the loot very interesting. I think overall, if everyone who's a Bethesda fan and says to themselves, I, I, I know what to expect from a Beth Bethesda game. I think you are enjoying this. There are a lot of things though, that I dislike that people kind of unanimously agree on that I will say, but before I move on to that, in terms of what I like, I, I just like that it is a Bethesda game. It still feels like a, a really cool role-playing game where you really feel like you can play a role and sort of, in a, in a sense, really stick to it. You know, there are a lot of moments where you can just attack and kill everything, and there are way more moments already, even at the beginning of me playing this game, way more than I remember at Fallout 4, where there is de-escalation, there is persuasion, uh, either using money or um, having your companion talk someone down. Um, there are a lot of choices at play in terms of de-escalation, which I think is really cool. Uh, or you can go on you know, the super murderous path and just kind of start shooting everything in sight. So that Bethesda feel, that Bethesda magic is still very much there, but it's like a double-edged sword when it comes to Bethesda because you know what to expect. And that includes the good and unfortunately it includes uh, the bad. The game still very much has a little bit of like that Bethesda jank on it. I think it's the best way that I want to put it. I honestly have not encountered many bugs. Um, the ones I've encountered are minimal. There was one moment where I went to land on a planet and the planet wasn't there. So I was landing on like nothing. And then the planet loaded in. Not a big deal. Uh, on two separate occasions. This only happened to me twice. In like however long I've been playing. 15-20 hours. Where I exited a building. All of a sudden my character just went right back inside. Just on its on his own. Uh, outside of that. that was That's kind of all I've encountered. I really haven't seen anything in terms of. Uh, bugs, visual or otherwise. I mean, you know, uh, your mileage may vary sort of thing. I've seen some people share some bugs where critical conversations that they need to happen, people are like floating above or below the ground. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate because it's something that we've connected so closely to Bethesda that uh, I thought that we would kind of get to that point where we wouldn't have to have these type of discussions of, things shipping with the game where it's like how the hell did this ship this way uh, because the development for this game was like over eight years it was delayed one entire year but there are so many moments already where the game launches and people approach a bethesda video game the same way as they've done in the past where it launches and immediately people find these glaring issues and then the next thing that comes out of their mouth is well modders will fix it so uh, and, and I think it's it's like, when is Bethesda going to learn their lesson, I guess, in a sense? Um, you know, a big thing was like no NVIDIA DLSS support. 
Modders put it in within 12 hours. I think it is definitely within the first 24 hours. I installed it. It was a very, very easy, very quick install. Uh, and, and it works. I'm able to play on ultra settings and my frame rate is is locked pretty solid at 60. I have to mess with it a little bit. I noticed that it's it's dipping a little bit to like 50, 57 sometimes. Um, but I'm pretty locked at 60 with this DLSS mod. Before I was locked at 60, but I had a mixture of like medium and high. Now I have ultra across the board. So the game definitely looks a lot better. It looks a lot sharper. Um, and then the fact that AMD came forward this month and they basically said like, yeah, we're, we're official partners for, for Starfield, but we never said the DLSS was not allowed. That, that, that's Bethesda thing. So it's like they just came forward and said, hey, don't come after us. Uh, proving that Bethesda, for some reason, didn't work with NVIDIA to put this in. Modders did it within 24 hours. The PC version doesn't have a field of view slider, something that no PC game should ship without. It's insane. They added it within 24 hours. Uh, and a lot of things I've already seen these these improved modders are moving fast. If you go to Nexus Mods, which is for for those that don't know, it's like like the big hub if you're into to, to modding video games. I have to look it up right now, but I think it was close to 500 mods have already been created um, for the game. Yeah, it's close to 500 mods already. Um, and some of them are the typical ones. Of course, people have to put their naked skins out there. You guys are horny freaks. I, don't, I definitely don't understand the point of stuff like that. You guys are mega weirdos with that type of stuff. Uh, other stuff are, you know, some people have already done texture packs, like crazy, crazy stuff. But the most popular ones that DLSS is performance optimization is one of the most popular ones. The FOV thing is popular. One that lets you like skip the intro videos. Uh, less spongy enemies, which I think that might be a good one for me to look at. I want to start looking into smooth UI is like a, is, is one that I'm really interested in. Um, apparently people have already solved the issue of you hitting a wall and not being able to go to the next uh, texture, having to reland. Apparently that's already been modded. Like these guys work so freaking quick when it comes to this stuff. But that's what I mean by like the Bethesda jank. Like I remember Greg Miller put out a video sort of in a way poking fun at his friends that they had a save mess up and they lost like three hours of progress. And he was like, oh, don't you understand? It's a Bethesda game. You should be doing a hard save every hour. And it's like, look, for a person like me, I know that. <laughs> Playing every, uh, I, I've played every Bethesda game since uh, Oblivion, pretty much. I played Oblivion, Skyrim, two Fallouts. Um, and one of the number one rules when you're playing a Bethesda game is you have to have a hard save at, at the very least every hour in case something goes wrong. But that's not, this isn't good. That's not good that another Bethesda game comes out and we're approaching it this way of like, hey, this game can fundamentally break on you at any point in time. So make sure you're saving. And look, quality assurance for this game must have been a bitch. Like I can't imagine how difficult it was and for what it's worth, it really is their most stable release. But there is so much, still so much of that Bethesda jank on it visually where, you know, the facial features have really improved. They've definitely improved, but there's still this stiffness to it, right? And I think it's because they're still employing these really old tactics where it's like it's 2023. We, you know, your game shouldn't be structured this way anymore, in my opinion, so like it is kind of difficult because a lot of people now look at Baldur's Gate 3 where 
you have their team coming forward and they say like, yeah, every single NPC in the game is completely motion and voice captured. Whereas now you look at Starfield, you go like, yeah, there's, that's not how it works here, right? So it does come across in the performances in Starfield where everyone does come a little bit wooden. They come across a little bit robotic because every single person you talk to is in the same exact position. It's that zoom in mode, mode, shoulders up. The game takes control away from me, which I absolutely hate. I can't stand that Bethesda still does this. Um if you're going to sell me on a game that gives me freedom, then you have to give me the freedom that if I enter a conversation, I should be able to exit at will whenever I want. And I should have full control of my character throughout that entire conversation. And because they do these whole player freezing shoulder up things, it makes it super awkward when you're having conversations with multiple people because um, the tracking isn't correct. Like sometimes their head will be turned talking to someone else, but then they start talking to you, but their their head doesn't turn. Like I said, it makes the performances very wooden, very flat. Um, and yeah, the, the facial animations are definitely like leaps ahead of what we saw in something like Fallout 4, for example. But the reason why you might hear some people be like, oh man, these things are still very ugly it's not really the facial animation. I think it's just the animation in general. It's the fact that people's bodies are still so stiff. There's only so much that, you know, the face can convey. And it's also that since it's so zoomed in, the game can't rely on anything to distract you, right? So if I was in just a first-person view where I can navigate around conversations, and there are some of those moments, like when you're having these constellation meetings. So constellation is like the group of explorers that you join and they have these head, this headquarters called the lodge. Sometimes those, those meetings, you are able to sort of walk around and you know, you don't have that freaking zoomed in thing. And I can't, I literally can't stand it. Like there was a moment where a bounty hunter found me because one of the traits I put on was wanted. Cause I thought that'd be kind of cool as part of my character's backstory that I have a bounty on my head. And I landed on the moon because I just wanted to check out the moon. And all of a sudden, I see a ship enter the atmosphere. I start moving towards it. Three people start moving towards me. They announce themselves as my bounty hunters. Now, there here's this whole spiel about them being bounty hunters, how there's this price on my head, and how they're going to collect it. And the game doesn't allow me to do anything. I have to sit here and, and hear this person talk. Knowing I already made my decision, what's my course of action? I'm pretty sure this person's probably going to ask me to pay them off. I'm just not going to, I know I'm, I just want to shoot this person, but I have to wait until the game allows me. I have to wait till the game shows me that door, till it gives me that dialogue option where I can attack because it specifically says attack, which means I'm going to say something that's going to enter an attack sequence. I'm able to actually go into combat. So I think like the team is still very good at creating a lot of these interlocking RPG systems, but they still. Um, are lagging so far behind when it comes to the actual open world aspect because the world itself feels so flat, to be honest with you, especially a lot of cities where sometimes you'll come across some really interesting uh, characters and they might have some, some interesting missions tied to them. But a lot of it is just kind of citizens walking around. But, uh, you know, I always like to say that the best open worlds are... Uh, I've said multiple things. Number one is a world that you feel like when you step away from it, it's still moving, like it doesn't revolve around you. But the other thing is 
I feel like um, some of the best open worlds are the ones that, uh, you know, react when you touch them, I guess, in a sense, where it's like when you touch them is memory foam. This this game, when you try to, 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 to do that, when you try to interact with the world, it's it's sort of a brick wall. And, you know, some people think interactions like opening, closing fridges, like I don't really consider that like next level uh, interaction. You know, just simple things. Like I had tweeted a video about this where if you take out a weapon, as long as your bullet doesn't strike someone, you can just kind of do whatever. You can shoot at the ground, shoot literally right next to someone, shoot your gun in the air. And um, the world does not react to you at all. You know, there and and there's just so many moments that it kind of makes me laugh when you see it. And it does 100% kill the immersion. Um, you know, like... Um, Try to think of an example. I remember there was one mission where I was on a planet and I randomly found a person's kind of trapped, like inside of a hut. I went to talk to them and they said that they ran out of fuel and they had no way off. And they basically said, "We're so lucky that you landed. Can you please just take us to the the, the nearest you know station or whatever nearest planet?" So I was like, "Of course, yeah." So it was like three of them. And I took them to this uh, planet I'd never been on, and there was a farm there. So we landed there, and I was like, wow, this farm actually looks like a really interesting place. Um, I liked the the look and the design of it. And I walk inside, and you know, I find a guy that I'm going to assume is like the owner of the farm, and he's sleeping. And I just literally walk up to him, and I press E, and that wakes him up. And I say, like, I think, I think the piece of dialogue was like, um, how long how long have you been on this farm or something like that? And the guy just gets out of bed and he's like, yeah, you know, I've, I inherited this farm. I've been here for 50, whatever. How to... And it's just like the ridiculousness of the fact that I just walked into this man's house, a complete stranger, woke him up out of bed, and he just gets up on his feet and is like, yep, let's have this conversation. And all of a sudden, a piece of dialogue came up where I was like, oh, is uh, Suzanne your daughter or something like that? I don't remember the, the girl's name. She was like, yeah, he, she's my daughter. I was like, I've landed on, I just got here. I, I've never met this woman. I don't know who she is, right? So it, th there are kind of those those moments like that. I was like, oh man, it, it really does kill the immersion. And it's just like, I can't imagine that there weren't persons, like multiple people within that team that kind of raised their hands in meetings. I was like, yeah, we, you know, we really don't have reactive AI. Is there anything like, it's like, no, not, not, not really. You know, like sometimes you'll have your companions react to you stealing something, for example. But it's weird because uh, if they see you stealing something, you know, they'll say like, oh, they didn't like that. But uh, at some point when they enter combat, they just forget. And I'll just steal a bunch of stuff and I'll ask them to, to carry the stuff that I've stolen. <laughs> they don't say anything. Um, or sometimes you'll like just, um, uh, I remember at one point I was with someone and the enemy decided to uh, basically like give up, raise the white flag. And part of my dialogue tree was just like to let them go. And I decided just to shoot the, the guy. And my companion just kind of didn't say anything. I was like, you don't have an opinion on this? <laughs> the fact that I just killed this person in cold blood. Um, so that lack of reactionary AI, it really 100% kills the immersion. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's 2023, man. We This can't happen. You can't try to sell me an open world and then mess up the absolute basics. Like if I shoot a gun in a crowd, the crowd disperses. 
That's like Grand Theft Auto 3 shit right there. <laughs> and Grand Theft Auto 3, if you pull out your gun and point it at someone, they react. And the fact that Starfield 2023, I do the same thing and there is zero reaction. That's horrible. That's bad. I remember there was this um, mission that I came across where uh, it was sort of a, a hostage situation. I won't go into details. I don't want to spoil too much. But I figured it out. The hostages get out and I see a man run up to his wife. And you kind of hear the desperation of his voice and the desperation in her voice about the fact that he's out and he's alive. But you can tell that Bethesda never built a system for two characters to interact and actually physically touch. <laughs> so it's just weird to have this emotionally charged moment. Um, and the guy going up to whatever, I think I'm pretty sure it was his wife, and having this moment of relief and all these emotions flowing. And then there is nothing happening between these two characters. There is no embrace, there's no hug. It's just a very stiff face-to-face -face conversation pretty far apart from one another, almost like at stranger space, uh, you know, and, and then all of a sudden the wife walks away and starts, the wife basically starts walking away and the husband just starts following behind her. Because like I said, there, those systems are never built. Those systems aren't put in place. So it's like, we're sold this grandiose vision of like freedom, exploration, living this world in actual role playing. But then there are so many supporting systems in the world that just completely fall apart and they a thousand percent, 1000% uh, kill the immersion in the game when you come across um, those things happening where, um, like I said, it's like these conversations happen and someone at Bethesda is like, nah, we, we don't need to do that. And it's like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, nah, you, I think you really should kind of, <laughs> I think you really should do that. Um, the other things that a lot of people are disliking that I would agree with, the navigation is kind of tough for you to wrap your head around uh, because it's a system that makes sense, but it's very jarring at first. Like a lot, I, I don't, a lot of, some people say that Starfield and Todd Howard exaggerated or they lied. I don't think so. I think they could have done a better job showing us exactly how traveling works in the game. But I don't think they lied or explicitly like hid anything. The whole fiasco before launch where people were talking about these borders and the fact that you can run into invisible walls. I've never once encountered that. I think you have to do a lot of running through a certain... Uh, instance of a planet in order to do that because when you pick a pick a planet to land on it basically generates a tile and some items in that tile are permanent so every time i land on that particular tile new atlantics will be at this particular spot on that planet if i build an outpost the outpost is always going to be there but there are sometimes these random things that they add that are places of interest so it might be like an enemy base for example um, that is what's randomly generated. And it can generate every time you go into a different tile, it'll generate something different. So you really aren't going to be spending a lot of time running because there's nothing to do. So I think Bethesda found a good balance where it's like they show me a place of interest that if I run to it, there's going to be something uh, interesting there <laughs> um, and not just vast nothingness. 
it's a smart system to do um, because if you think in your head like, oh, I would rather just walk around and stumble upon something, it's just not a good gameplay loop. It just doesn't really make any sense. And it's important for games to do that. You have to balance fun versus realism. So like in this game, the fuel system for your ship is pretty much how far you can go in a single jump. So it's not like something where you can run out of fuel or run out of gas. So once again, that's a balance between realism versus gameplay. It just wouldn't really be good for gameplay if you get trapped in the middle of nowhere because you ran out of fuel, right? Um, and I'm sure someone would, will build that hardcore mod at, uh, at some point. I think the bigger problem is more like this. There's just a lot of loading screens. And, and Bethesda didn't do a good job of hiding loading screens. So where you're taking off or a landing, it's very sort of jarring. It doesn't really feel smooth. You don't feel like a, a, a good smooth transition. I actually was thinking about that Star Wars game that's being made by uh, by Ubisoft for whatever reason. Now I can't remember what the, the, the name of this um, game is. Star Wars Outlaws. Where they did that gameplay walkthrough and they showed the ship taking off and going into the atmosphere. Now, let me tell you something. That is not um, gameplay, right? So when you get in the ship, it goes into a, uh, a, a cutscene, but the cutscene gives you a bit of control over the, uh, the ship as you're leaving the atmosphere. At some point, you hit clouds, and the clouds basically um, hide the loading screen. So it, the, it, it feels like a much more seamless transition to go from land to sky um so i think like star wars outlaws if you guys want to rewatch i think that's a good example of like yes it's a cutscene, but it's a much smoother transition where here it's it's jarring you know you just get a photo or you get a black screen with a small spinning circle and then there are a lot of these loading points where it's like it really just cuts the immersion like if you land on a planet and you have to go back into your ship when you enter your ship, it's a loading screen. So I'm like, man, why can't, like we really couldn't get it to like, I just climb up this ladder and I enter my ship. Um, even in some planets, like one of my favorite cities is called Neon. It's built on like this fishing rig, you know, in the middle of the sea. Awesome. I think it's, I think it's one of the best designed cities. Uh, New Atlantis is probably the worst, which is supposed to be the premier city. It's ugly, horrible architecture, horrible layout. But Neon is very, very well done. It feels decrepit, dirty, smelly, stinky. Uh, you know, it has that cyberpunk aesthetic to it. That's where you go to sell your stolen goods, you know. Uh, it, it's on the edge of the universe. I, I, I love it. it. It's definitely my favorite city so far. And when you're on certain levels, there are a lot of shops. But there are a lot of shops that don't have a door. So you just walk in. It's like a walk-in storefront. And I'm able to interact with the vendor. But then for some reason, there are some other vendors that are hidden behind doors. So when you go to the door, it's a load, it's a loading screen. So it's like, I wish that they would have cut down on that a bit more. Um, in terms of traveling, it really, it really just boils down to a lot of fast travel. Like if I'm on a planet and I've complete that part of my mission, you can traverse back to your, your ship. You can fast travel to the ship. Or you can just um, open up your map and just fast travel from where you're standing. And that's kind of usually what I personally choose to do uh, because it's just a lot quicker. There are some moments that, you know, on a certain planet, I do like to 
traverse and look around or actually navigate my way back, maybe pick up some resources along the way. But when it's places you've been to, you know, you just kind of use um, the uh, the map. And that's another problem. The map system is really not very good. There are no local maps, which is very uh, preposterous. It's crazy. And once again, a lot of people are like, oh, don't worry, modders will fix it. I don't think that's a positive. Like if I'm Bethesda and I'm looking through the feedback for this game, that's something that I'm like, I don't know. Like I personally wouldn't be happy with it. I wouldn't be happy with shipping a game and people telling me, well, other people will fix it for free. Like it should be something that you guys should have done. There are a lot of things about this game that I feel like, you know, a dedicated team should have been put for this and only this, and the game should not have shipped unless this was perfect. And a map system is one of them. The fact that a lot of these, even the major city of New Atlantis doesn't have a local map. It's it's just like, I, I, it, I mean, it's inexcusable. It's it's crazy. It's insane for something like that, <clears throat> for something like that to exist. And then when it comes to the map of, like navigating different solar systems and navigating different star systems and planets. It's not the worst. I wouldn't say it's absolutely awful, but it's definitely not definitely not the best because I don't feel like you get enough information when you're looking at other star systems. The other thing is hopefully you have a good memory because there's no way to like favorite a planet. So at one point I wanted to go back to Neon and I kind of had to think about different star systems like, oh, was it in that one? Was it in Vox or Polymus and all, all these other randomly named ones? Because if you hover over a uh, a star system like Alpha Centauri, you kind of just get the names of the planets that are in there. It doesn't dig deep and tell you what city is in there. So sometimes you'll you'll click into a star system and you'll just see the planets that are within that system. And hopefully, like I said, you remember which planet Neon was on, because if not, then you, you're going to have to probably Google it or something like that, because I have no, no idea how you have a game that supposedly has a thousand planets, but there's no way to favorite a planet or a city for you to return to. It's kind of like these simple things Like it's like, I don't understand how this game shipped without this, where now it's like... Yeah, like modders, maybe at some point Bethesda will add it, but they're not going to do it quicker than a modder can. So the moment a, a, a mod is added that allows me to favorite planets and cities, I'm installing it immediately because I know the modders are going to move them a lot faster uh, than Bethesda can. The other major issue is the, 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 the UI and the UX. Horrible. Once again, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, how did this game ship with... Uh, with this user experience it's bad and it's not and, and it's not like really bad on its own it's more that it's really bad for this type of game like i said this is kind of one of those aspects of an rpg that you have to have like a dedicated amazing team built just dedicated to that that's saying when this game ships this ui and ux has to be perfect and there's so many things that it's like for a game that relies so much on resource management and item management, it's just unacceptable that it shipped in, in, in the shape that it did. And the fact that it, there's, it's just a lot of things that lack common sense. Like if you see food somewhere, there's no button to just eat the food. You have to pick it up, then go into your menu and go into the food. Um, there's just so much like that. If you're looting someone or looting like a chest, It'll show you the names of the items, 
But if you don't know what it is, you have to press another button to get into a menu screen in order to see what it is that you're picking up. So if something's just called Orion, like I remember recently, I saw something in a chest called Orion. I was like, what the hell is that? It sounds like an item. But when I clicked on it, that transfer button, it was actually a, a rifle. <laughs> so it's it's kind of one of those things where it's like, how, how does something like this get overlooked? Or something as simple as like a button to eat the food, for example. Um, encumbrance and, and transferring items between different storage is just awful. So you get encumbered pretty fast for those people that don't know encumbrance is when you carry more than your weight limit allows. So my weight limit right now is 145. The moment I carried enough stuff to put me at 146, you get encumbered. It's a lot better than in the older games. In the older games, you would just crawl around when that happened. You are not allowed to fast travel. In, in Starfield, you cannot tra fast travel still if you're over encumbered, but you're still able to move. You can sprint, but your oxygen de depletes faster, you, so you can't run or sprint as long as you, as you normally can. But if you have a companion with you, you can transfer items over to them. But then you also have a storage on your ship, which is very helpful. That's about like 450, I think it is. Um, and what's interesting is that when you're within 250 meters of your ship, you can transfer stuff back and forth between your person and the ship. If you're in a store and your ship is parked on the other side of the planet, you can still access your ship inventory to sell stuff to the store. Now, I want you to remember this. <laughs> you can sell stuff from your ship to any shop that you go to. That's sacrificing realism for fun. I love it. It's a good system that they built. But this game takes a lot of resource management. You're picking up resources and you're picking up um, items used for crafting. And there's a lot of them, right? And those items are used to modify and build things. So in the lodge, which is the sort of the headquarters for Constellation, the basement, you have all these benches. There's one for researching. That's where you can research how to build barrels, build laser sights for your weapon, how to build uh, better upgrades for your helmet, for your pack, for your spacesuit. You can uh, build better food that has, um, you know, uh, gives you better status effects and stuff like that. Um, you can actually build items that you can then use for crafting. So if it's like a, you know, a wire module or whatever for, to craft something, if you have iron and nickel, for example, you can use that to build that wire module instead of if you can't find it or if you can't buy it. So there's all these systems that rely on resources that you're constantly picking up. Now, when you're inside of uh, that um, lodge, if I'm going to build something, like say if I want to add a barrel to a weapon and it needs five nickel, five lead, if I have that on my ship, it'll drain those resources even if the ship is on the other side of the planet, 2,000 meters away. Very convenient. But the ship only holds 450, something that you'll, um, you know, uh, you will fill very, very quickly. So what I started doing was that I started taking out my resources from my ship in order to just keep like spare weapons if I want to swap weapons depending on different missions. And inside of the lodge, two floors up above all these benches that I just told you about is a tiny safe in your room because you have a dedicated room. That safe is unlimited storage. So I, my, so I said to myself, perfect, I'll just store all my resources here. But if I go down to the benches, I try to build something, 
five lead, five nickel. I cannot access that safe that's two floors above me, but I can access the ship that's on the other side of the planet. So like I said, it's like these small things in the UI and the UX, like it's like, it, it makes zero sense. So like right now, like I wanted to add a long barrel to this rifle. I had to take out my phone and write down what I needed. I need seven nickel, seven lead. I had to run upstairs, take it from my safe, come back down to the benches so I can I can build that mod. It, it just honestly doesn't make any sense. And it's one of those things that once again, even if Bethesda takes that feedback and goes, well, that kind of makes sense. We should allow the benches to access that safe. That makes sense. They cannot do it faster than a modder can. So the moment that there's a mod that allows me to do that, I'm I'm installing that mod because I don't want a mod that gives me unlimited encumbrance. I kind of I kind of like the challenge of encumbrance. But when it comes to like building and putting together stuff, there has to be some convenience involved. It just kind of doesn't really make any sense that that's um sort of put that way. Um and then every you know, some other things that were like minor that I noticed. I noticed that there are a lot of mission um, objectives that could be, that could have been solved with a phone call. Like they'll be like, oh, go to this uh, ship and talk to this person. You go to talk to the person they're like, yeah, you can go to this planet. I'm like, why? This is like the year 2323 or something like that. This game takes place. Why? Well, we don't have phones here. <laughs> I can't just call this guy for him to tell me on the phone, the research that he did that shows the planet that I'm supposed to go to. Um, like and and then there was another one where I was tasked with being like a dipl diplomatic middleman between two parties. I don't want to spoil it. Um, that again, I had to like fly back and forth from the planet to a ship that was hovering above the planet. And it's like, why can't I just use my comm system <laughs> to speak to these two different parties? It's just kind of like weird. I, I thought that was kind of a um, a bit of a. Um, a minor gripe, I would say. And like I said, and, and I think a lot of things that just missing features, it shipped without a field of view slider. Modders fixed that within 24 hours. It shipped without NVIDIA DLSS support. Um, it only um, supports AMD's technology for that. AMD came forward a few weeks ago and they said, that's not us. We, there's no part in that contract that says they cannot put DLSS in that in that game. That means that Bethesda didn't do it for whatever reason. They dropped the ball. They didn't work with NVIDIA to get DLSS on here. Modders did it within 24 hours. I installed it. I'm not able to play on Ultra with a 60 FPS lock on um, on PC. And in my opinion, that's just that's unacceptable. That's something that I feel like it's a bit embarrassing that there's so many things that instantly the game comes out and you know, it's natural. There are always going to be mods at all times, but there are a lot of these like really common sense mods. Like it's like, this should have been here from the beginning. It, it reminds me of like when cyberpunk launched and there was no way for you to modify your character's appearance and a modder did it within 48 hours. It's unacceptable. Like that's something that if I'm part of Bethesda, I'm like, man, this, that's kind of, that's actually a little bit embarrassing because it is embarrassing that you guys ship the PC game knowing that you guys are a PC company, right? This is a PC developer pretty much, right? It's usually PC first. Um, and you didn't ship with a, a field of view slider. It's just kind of just honestly really weird. I think overall, there's a lot of things that you can overlook. Um, 
I think that anyone that says like this, the, like the game is like bad or they dislike it, I think they're just honestly just really wrong. <laughs> I really don't know what, what else to tell you. I think if you go into it knowing, hey, this is a Bethesda game, I know what I'm going to get into, uh, it gets really good. I think it starts off kind of slow. Um, I'm enjoying the mystery of the main mission, the main story. So I've kind of been um, progressing through the main story a lot. Um, I know that there's a lot of reviewers that talk about New Game Plus and how the New Game Plus is really special and how some people are saying like, oh, the game doesn't begin until you hit New Game Plus. It's actually, I, I feel like it's very easy to figure out what the New Game Plus is. Once I, I heard about all this excitement and Todd Howard talking about how the New Game Plus is something different and special, there's a point where you get to in the game where I feel like it becomes very easy to figure it out. And I, I, I haven't looked into it to see if I'm right, but I feel like I'm 99% sure that I figured out what the New Game Plus is and why people say it's so special. And honestly, I do agree. It's a, it's a really good idea. If it's, if it's what I think it is, what I'm guessing it is, because I feel like it is a little bit easier to figure out once you understand people talking about, if no one ever talked about New Game Plus, how special it was, I wouldn't have figured it out. But there's a moment in the game where you're like, oh, this is probably what New Game Plus is. Um, so I'm curious what, and I'm curious if they stack, like what does this game look like if I new game plus three, for example, I think that's it, you know, I think it's going to get interesting at that point. Um, but there it's a Bethesda game. There's still so much to do. There's still a lot of interest, interesting twists in a lot of these um, missions and stories. I like that. There's like these really small missions. Like I was flying around and a ship hailed me down and, they needed lead in order to fix their grav drive. Very easy. Gave them lead. They gave me credit. Another one was kind of funny. It was like a tour ship. They were like on a tour of a planet and they never met a real life like ship captain. So the leader of the tour asked if I'm okay with them asking me questions. And they were asking questions about how dangerous it is. Am I single? Kind of like these weird, funny questions. And of course, you could choose to just leave, but I answered the questions and they gave me credits in return. So I like that there's like these small, really quick, simple missions, but then there are also like these really layered side missions uh, that I think is pretty, uh, um, really, really cool. I think my mission list right now, I probably have like 20 missions that I haven't even began because I'm, I'm very engrossed in the main mission. I really want to see the main story through. It's I think it's compelling enough where I want to see it to its conclusion. Um, so I don't feel like I'm I'm rushing through it. I feel like I'm going through it at the pace that I'm comfortable with. Um, and uh, I do have criticisms about the main story, but I would get into spoiler territory, so I don't want to do that. Um, but overall, honestly, I'm really enjoying the game. It's a game that you can tell, like, at a base level, without mods, <laughs> uh, there's already so much um, here you really do feel like you get the bang for your buck. But I think with mods, this is like a 15-year a game right here. Like, if you look at Skyrim mods now and the way the game looks, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, it looks like night and day compared to when the game launched. And it's a game that you do look forward to starting over and getting different traits for your character. And, like, I didn't put the parent trait because the character that I built, my first character... I wanted him to be like a loner, for example, born on the streets of neon. Uh, but there's like a parent mod where your parents are alive and you can visit them, for example. 
There's another one where, you know, the adoring fan, I want to go back and, and have that trait on. I didn't do it the first time. Uh, I tried to do like a really cold-blooded run, but and there are choices where like they're really cold-blooded, <laughs> you know, like they're like really awful choices that my own natural morality, I'm like, I can't do this. I, I just can't do it. So I, I want to go through a run where I just force myself to do those really nasty, bad, poor things, you know, awful, awful things, and then do another like super, you know, try to be as pacifist as possible. So as you're playing the game, you're already kind of figuring out, you know, new playthroughs. And it's definitely a game that I'm trying, I'm pretty busy, so I'm not putting that many hours each day, but I feel like it's a game that you kind of don't want to do that. I, I feel like this is a game that you're going to be playing for, for, for years um, to come, especially with that new game plus and everything that, you know, sort of comes along with it. And the fact that missions are, you know, classic, but you know, Bethesda missions where there are different ways to, to, to solve and resolve different things. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really much enjoying it, but you know, before we wrap this up, I wanted to touch on this GameStop GameStop, GameSpot and IGN review. They both gave this game a seven out of 10. And of course there were some people that were upset, mostly the Xbox stands and fanboys and people that were having an absolute meltdown over people giving this game, God forbid, a seven out of 10. Um, I, I, I was able to read the games, uh, excuse me, the IGN review after I started playing the game. Uh, I did not read, and I skimmed through reviews uh, before I started playing the game. I read through the IGN review. I did not read the GameSpot one because uh, I saw someone tweeted that it kind of does delve into spoilers a bit. Apparently, the writer wasn't very careful, so I just want to avoid that. Uh, But I wanted to read it and see, like, does the review really reflect a 7 out of 10? Now, I will say a few things about Starfield. Number one, and most importantly, is that it's very normal to love a game, have a lot of fun with the game, but be critical of it and point out things that are unacceptable and things that you dislike. You know, so I'm okay with sitting here saying, I love this game. I'm going to continue playing it, especially now that I got it on, I was able to install it on PC um, and, and and it's running really, really good. But at the same time, I could say, yeah, there are certain things that are kind of ugly about it. There are systems that are kind of a little bit like unacceptable, to be honest with you. Um, The UI is horrible. The map system is really bad. There are a lot of loading screens. It's okay to be critical and still love the game and still admire it. Um, Because I, 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 I would really be interested to find out why this game has a thousand planets. Because I'll be honest, as I play it and I realize the limitations that they had to put forth for the game, the amount of loading screens, for example, things like that, um, it really kind of makes me feel like, why didn't they make the decision of just doing 100 amazingly curated planets? I feel like that would have been a better decision than, I feel like quality would have been better than quantity. I'm kind of curious as to why they didn't do that. But yeah, so it's okay to, 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 I feel like people kind of want to make you feel online like that's not okay. Like if you love this game, you have to eat all the shit along with it. It's like, no, you know, you can love it and still 
as long as it's constructive criticism, criticism, you can be critical of it. It's fine, perfectly fine. The other thing about it is that I think that this is one of those games that I look at and I go that I personally think seven out of 10 is too low. I think eight out of 10, understandable. I do think seven out of 10 is too low for this game from what I've played so far. The other thing is that I think 10 out of 10 is too high. Anyone that gives this game a 10 out of 10, it kind of reminds me about Starfield. I mean, excuse me, um, of Cyberpunk, because I said the same exact thing about anyone that gave out a 10 out of 10. I think they're crazy. I think anyone that gives, gives this game a 10 out of 10, you shouldn't trust that person's review. Because then in my opinion, you're blinded by the Bethesda. Like you're, you're blinded by all the good that a 10 out of 10, a perfect score means that None of these other things matter. All the UI stuff, the navigation, the map stuff. Um, like I said, the fact that the world is really not built very well in terms of, in terms of it, the way it reacts, the system's built, the open world itself doesn't really feel that good. That's not a 10 out of 10, in my opinion. With all due respect to Bethesda, I think they're an amazing team. I don't think this game is a 10 out of 10, but I also don't think it's a 7 um, out of 10 either. When I read the IGN review, I will say um, there's been a lot of people online. I feel like IGN is biased. There's a lot of chatter. I see a lot on Twitter. A lot of it is really fueled by Xbox fan accounts, to be honest. But it it, it is a little bit interesting. Like IGN, I think it was like three weeks in a row where they kept publishing articles and videos and talking about games and the Xbox logo was missing. Just kind of these really weird things. And I don't overtly, I, I think I will say that um, reading that review and then looking at that score, I, I think, I think I'd, I'd listen to the conspiracy theory uh, for IGN when it comes to, I think that this game, that, that review read like an 8 out of 10 in my opinion. I, you know, I, I would entertain the conspiracy theory of them giving it a 7 out of 10 for, for clicks. Um, because we're talking about it. I feel like if it was an eight out of 10, we wouldn't be talking about it. And unfortunately, I, I don't subscribe to this idea that there's bias and people are paid off and all that crap. That's all garbage. If anyone ever tells you that reviewers are paid off, it's just absolute trash. It's an awful rumor. It, there's just no truth to it. Um, but when it comes to companies like IGN and even GameSpot doing things just to garner clicks and clickbait, I, I wouldn't run it past them. You know, GameSpot gave this game a seven out of 10. And mysteriously enough, when everyone was talking about IGN and Dan Stapleton, who's the writer was like defending himself out of nowhere, GameStop GameSpot just started tweeting. We gave the game a seven out of 10. And like in tw within 24 hours, they had three different tweets talking about how they gave Starfield a seven out of 10. I mean, I, I just find it hard to believe that that's not clickbaity, that that's not being done purposely to tell people like, hey, you know, we also gave it a 7 out of 10. Why aren't you guys talking about us? Why aren't you guys clicking my article so we can sell some ads? Like, it's it's kind of bullshit. And it is one of those things where I will, I will entertain that theory that this game was an 8 out of 10, but someone at IGN said, no, let's give it a 7. It makes for a better story. I I honestly wouldn't completely discount that. I gotta be honest. When I read that review, I was like, it doesn't really feel like a seven out of ten. But I think overall, uh, this is something that I've been kind of I, I've been I, I might want to do a YouTube video about this. But it's way past the time that uh, 
we stop giving reviews numbers. And I think this applies across the board. I think it applies for films also, but I think even more for video games. We've gotten to this point where unfortunately, because of the way social media is constructed, especially places like Twitter, um, we can't handle scores anymore. We just can't. We just can't. Unfortunately, this whole tribalism of PlayStation versus Xbox has just gone too far where we get to the point now where it's so overtly disrespectful to all the amount of work that goes into a video game where, you know, eight years of work is devolved down to a number where Starfield gets an 88 and people are like, oh, look, play this PlayStation game got 91. That's garbage. Even if it's like a completely different game, right? Or people say, you know, oh, IGN is biased. They gave Starfield 7 out of 10, except they gave Pentiment a 10 out of 10. They gave Forza Horizon 5 a 10 out of 10. I think they gave Halo a 9 out of 10. So there's obviously not proof. You know, pr- the, you know the proof is like very convenient for these fa- these Stan accounts, right? It's, it's all convenient truths, whatever supports the story that I'm trying to sell you. And I think that unfortunately, our industry has has gotten to this point, especially when it comes to social media and chatter and conversations, where um, review scores just honestly just can't be handled anymore. And I think that all they lead to is laziness. Um, You know, a game gets released, review scores come out, a bunch of different accounts, Twitter accounts, a bunch of different media outlets throw all those reviews together. We, we got Metacritic, we got Open Critic, and then everything gets easily dissolved. And I think it's it's one of, there's so many like great things that social media and the internet has given us. And this is one of the awful things that social media has given us is the shortcut. Everyone wants the shortcut. Everyone wants the bottom line. Everyone wants the cliff notes. No one wants to read anymore. <laughs> like no one wants to, no one really wants a review anymore. Uh, and, all the scores do is continue to perpetuate that is continue to feed like the bottom feeders to give you the cliff notes. So for people to go to IGN and see why wow, they gave it a seven out of 10 and then they'll click on it. They'll scroll right down to the bottom, see those bullet points, you know, some, some websites, I think like, uh, what's what, whatever website windows central that just Corden works for. They have the pluses and the minuses here, are the positives here, are the negatives, Four out of five. They'll read that little tiny box and they'll go, oh, wow. And then two two reactions will happen. Either they expect the Starfield to do good because they love Bethesda, they love Xbox, or they expected it to do bad because they hate Bethesda, they hate Xbox, they love PlayStation. That score will then, inf- that score combined with where you already aligned, that is now going to make the decision for you. And it's so unfortunate because like I said, we've get, we've, it, it gets people to a point where there is no autonomy. People aren't making these decisions kind of on their own anymore. They're um, walking away from it saying, ah, see, told you, 88, it's not 90, garbage. You know, it's PlayStation, PlayStation stands. Xbox fans will go, ah, you see, it's 88. The, the box is green. That's all that matters. Better than Forspoken, You're that crappy PlayStation exclusive. And it's like, I'm so sick and tired of it. The other reason why I think that reviews need to go away, because this actually now legitimately affects the livelihood of employees, men and women who work their asses off to create these games. Now bonuses are tied to Metacritic. 
And it's just so unfortunate to find out, to tell people like, hey, once the, the Metacredit is settled, if it's 90, we'll give you this bonus. If it's not, you get nothing. If, it, if, if, you get, if we get an 89, you don't get anything. With that in mind, that knowledge, I don't understand why anyone would want to give review numbers at all. To know that my critique, my criticism can now affect someone's bonus, I just can't imagine why anyone would want to do review numbers anymore. Here's the other reason why review scores need to need to be done away with. They just don't mean anything anymore. The scale has been so broken. <laughs> it just doesn't mean anything, right? When you look at the numbers one through 10, five is in the middle. Five is supposed to be a good game. Now a good game is seven, <laughs> right? <laughs> and now you look at uh, sometimes if the game is hyped up enough, a seven is bad. Seven is awful when seven is supposed to be good. Seven is now the new good. Six and five are awful. Anything below five, you shouldn't even look at it. Don't, don't look in its general direction. But if a game is really hyped, a seven, awful. It's bad. It's not a, it's not a good game, actually. The other problem is when you go to the opposite, there's way too many 10 out of 10s given now. There's just way too many 10 out of 10s given. The 10 out of 10, especially like the IGN 10, it really doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, like I think Famitsu's perfect score is still a little bit respectful respectable because that list is still really short but when you look at famitsu's perfects it's like are these really perfect are these really 40s like is it really that way but then when you look at ign's 10s out of 10 out of 10s there's so many of them that they've given out in the last few years that it's like this kind of doesn't mean anything ign gave def loop a 10 out of 10 Pause for a dramatic effect. They gave Deathloop a 10 out of 10. Spelunky 2. Guys ever heard of Spelunky 2? Well, that's a 10 out of 10. Last of Us Part 2, a 10 out of 10. I don't think that game is a 10 out of 10. Overwatch, they gave a 10 out of 10. I love Overwatch. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Amazing multiplayer game. 10 out of 10, though? Uh, I don't know. The, the 10 out of 10 just doesn't, doesn't mean anything anymore. A 10 out of 10 at some, at some moment in time meant that this was revolutionary. This is a game we're going to be talking about for years. Like Ocarina of Time, 10 out of 10. I'll take it. Even Breath of the Wild, that's an understandable 10 out of 10. Definitely. I, I, I'll hear on that one. Tears of the Kingdom? No. Tears of the Kingdom is not a 10 out of 10. It's not... Uh, it's not revol it's not something that's revolutionary. Like Breath of the Wild was revolutionary. Tears of the King just adds to that. Baldur's Gate 3, I can see a 10 out of 10 on that. I get that. You know, I could see that. But there are so many of these things that a 10 out of 10 is just not special anymore. It just, it just really isn't. It just doesn't mean what it used to mean because these websites just give them out willy-nilly. And... I think, like I said, it's past time that we just got rid of these damn review numbers. They don't do anything. They don't add to the conversation. All that they do is subtract. There are only negatives attached to a review score. I sat down with when, when I was thinking about talking about this on the show, and I tried to think about a positive or a review score, and I couldn't find a single one. 
There is not a single positive, someone can tell me, that a review score accomplishes. It just doesn't. It doesn't. All it does is lead to laziness. If you're really looking forward to a game, read reviews. Go read them. Go watch video reviews. You're about to make a $70 purchase. Go sit down and really inform yourself. Don't sit there excited about a game and see the score and go, okay, that that nails it. I'm definitely going to go buy it. Or if it was bad, just instantly go, oh man, that's that's a that's a 70. Forget it. I'm not going to buy it. Because the one thing I always try to tell people is that there is no such thing as a professional opinion. That doesn't matter. Just because Dan Stapleton is getting paid at IGN, it doesn't mean that his Starfield review somehow holds more weight than mine does. Because the only thing that really matters is word of mouth. So if you guys follow Camp Koji or you follow my Twitter and you go, I really like Joel's taste in games. I really like his take on knowledge. You follow my YouTube channel. And I'm telling you that, yeah, you're going to like everything I went through. This is why you're going to like this game. This is why you might not like this game. I feel like that's a better review for you to go like, I actually trust Joel's judgment. I think I'm, I'm going to look into getting Starfield way more than a Dan Stapleton, a person that you probably don't trust, don't know what games he likes, don't know uh, his history, other games that he's reviewed or stuff like that. His review is no better than mine. Mine is no better than his just because he's on some a website that's way bigger than my platform. It doesn't mean that he he's a professional reviewer and I'm not, or that uh, IGN's review means more than mine or that their review means more than yours. It just plainly just does not. The way that I personally decide to buy a video game is number one, I never pre-order. That's a very, very important thing. Number two is that uh, a lot of it is, I look at number one, the publisher. Do I trust the publisher? Do I trust that they're going to deliver? PlayStation is a publisher, 100% uh, trust them. That's usually a day one. I don't even have to re-review, right? Uh a brand new Rockstar game. We're not talking about remakes. I trust Rockstar. Nintendo, I trust Nintendo. Xbox, I do not trust Xbox, unfortunately. Sorry. I just don't trust them as much as those other publishers. Bethesda, I trust what I'm going to get, even though I know that I'm not going to get a 10 out of 10. Okay? Unfortunately, that's just something I've, I've come to terms with when it comes to uh, Bethesda. And then, depending on the reviews, for me, it's just technical. If if a review is telling me that, hey, technically this game is not very good, I'm not going to buy it. Case in point, Star Wars Jedi Survivor. I was excited for that game, really liked the first game. I kind of do trust Respawn and EA. The moment that it came out, people were like, man, even the PlayStation 5 version isn't running very well. Oh, I'm not going to play. I'll wait till it go- gets a little bit cheaper. And what I ended up doing was that I ended up signing up for Gamefly for, for a month just to give it a try. And I rented Star Wars. That's what I did. That's what stopped me from buying that game. It wasn't reviews. I don't care what the reviews say. I trust that I was going to like the game because I really liked the first one. I trust the team. What stopped me from buying it at launch is that I'm not going to pay you $70 for a game that's not technically ready. I'm, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm really, I'm really not. And as excited as I was for Starfield, if the same thing would have happened, I would not have bought Starfield. If the reviews were all saying like, man, bugs, crashes, blah, 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 I wouldn't have bought it. So far... My Starfield has not crashed once on Xbox or, or, or PC. 
That's why I bought it. As excited as I was for Starfield, if I would have heard that it was crashing, it wasn't ready, had a lot of issues, I'm not giving up my money at launch. That's not going to happen. Cyberpunk taught me a valuable lesson. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I learned my lesson. I'm not, I'm not doing this uh, again. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. This week's hot releases, September 6th, we have the official release of Starfield. That's for PC, Xbox Series S and X, and it also will be available on Game Pass. Same day, September 6th, we have Baldur's Gate 3 coming to PlayStation 5. September 8th, we have Faye Farm coming to PC and Switch. And finally, also on September 8th, we have NBA 2K24, PC, P4, P5, Switch, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X. Time for us to wrap it up. Stories we didn't have time to get to. SAG-AFTRA, the union for U.S. actors, is moving towards a potential strike against video game publishers. Last Friday has authorized a member's vote after it reached a stalemate in negotiations with company and companies such as Activision and Take-Two over wages and AI protection. SAG-AFTRA is seeking an 11% increase in wages for game performers, which is the same as seeking for those who work under film and television contracts. It also wants protections from AI, which is as poses a threat to performers' artistry and livelihoods. Uh, this is amazing. This is great. I, I saw some people reacting to this news like, oh, you know, games are going to get delayed, blah, 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 blah. You guys are awful, man. <laughs> like, what awful human beings you guys are. Um, you know, what's happening right now in Hollywood and now extending into video games is without a doubt, I've been saying this before, it's the most important uh, strike and contract negotiation uh, of like, I'm not going to say of all history, but uh, it's definitely one of the most important ones in like labor history, these, in, these particular ones, because of the importance of having a contract in place that says that we cannot be replaced by computers. It's definitely one of the most important ones uh, because every single company, publisher that you love, film studio that you love, wants absolutely nothing more than to lower their cost. Every single year, they're looking for new ways to do it. And if they can use a computer to do your job, a computer that can never, ever get tired, never has to take a lunch break, uh, never needs vacation or days off, they will take that, uh, they will make that decision 10 times out of 10 every single day. Um, so if a strike is what's necessary, a strike is what's necessary. If it causes delays to video games, so be it. I'm sure your backlog is big enough. Stop bitching. But that's his publishing head. Pete Hind commented on Redfall's launch by saying, quote, the Elder Scrolls Online's PC launch was not flawless, but we stuck with it. Now, since it's insanely popular, multi-platform is the same with Fallout 76. Redfall is no different. Okay, we didn't get the start we wanted, but it's still a fun game. We're going to keep working on it. We're going to do 60 frames per second. We're going to get it to be a good game because we know as a first-party studio, Game Pass lives forever. I think that this is a perfect example of um, now that Xbox owns all this, going to Xbox and transferring the future Redfall to another team, to be honest with you. To me, I think that this team is way too talented to continue working on Redfall. It's obviously, we, we all know, the secret's out. This was not a game that they were interested in working on. I'm pretty sure that it's a game that Arcane probably does not want to continue working on. So uh, look, if you have to break off a small team to get it running 60 frames, I personally think that that's it. You just let the game die. I, I don't think that 
it's worth putting any more into it to try to revive it and do all this stuff with it. On the flip side, I do like what Pete Hines said. Game Pass lists forever. I do I do like that statement. Um, and he does bring up a good point about Fallout and uh, Elder Scrolls. But I feel like those had massive brands behind them, right? Redfall doesn't. And I think you have this team in Arcane that's probably more than ready, willing, able, and excited to create another amazing single-player game. Uh, let them. <laughs> for, for God's sake, let them. Like, let them make either the next Dishonored, let them make a sequel to Prey or something all new. Uh, let them run free. Do not tie them to, the, to, to this boulder that is Redfall. That's our show. Quick shout-outs. Shout-out to Volition, the company in so fortunate closing down. And it's definitely due to Saints Row, which I said from the beginning, what a horrible uh, idea. <laughs> that, kid, that game, that direction should have never happened, to be honest with you. Um, it has been confirmed that Saints Row, though, will live on, uh, apparently in the hands of Play On, the team behind Dead Island 2 and the upcoming Payday 3. This could just mean that in the hands of Play On just means that they're going to keep maintaining the current Saints Row. Um, this doesn't mean that there's a sequel in the way. Uh, I think it'd be kind of interesting for them to reboot it again <laughs> because I think that's the only way to bring Saints Row back. You got to go back to the gang route. You have to go back to the gang roots. You got to go back to it, and I think it'll be successful. And then finally, shout out to Michael Unsworth, the 16-year Rockstar veteran writer, recently updating his LinkedIn, reflecting that he's left the company. His work includes both Red Dead Redemption games, GTA 4 and 5, Max Payne 3, and Midnight Club Los Angeles. This is now the third major writing departure in the last few years for Rockstar. Michael joins Dan Hauser and Laszlo Jones. Those three were pretty much the brains of the operation, the heads when it came to the amazing writing of uh, the last few Rockstar games. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge loss. We'll have to see how this affects Grand Theft Auto 6 and everything else going forward. Um, but best of luck to him in his future. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Camp Koji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next week.